Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We love it. We love a family atmosphere here at Echo. We're excited because one of our family members who preached for us this summer said, hey, got another message. So I was like, great, come preach it. So we had Christmas in July. Now we're going to have Pentecost in November. Let's see how it all works. There's also some really great smelling bread here. Just, just see. We're going to see what's going to happen. So we welcome Gary. Come on, give it up. Give it up for Gary. <laughs> Good morning, good morning. Mic check, mic check. All right. We're doing some learning today. Put your, put your learning caps on, however that looks for you. So, who here has read the book series, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy? Show of hands if, if you have. All right. I'm going to ruin a little bit of it for you here today, if you haven't read it. Uh, so, you know, cover your ears if you were really hoping to get around to it sometime. Uh, you've had your whole life to do it. Uh, it didn't come out last week. Um, there's a bit of a running joke in the series about what the purpose of the earth is. Uh, After a few pages into the first book, the earth gets destroyed uh, in order to make room for a space highway. It turns out, a long time ago, hyper-intelligent, pan-dimensional beings created this computer called Deep Thought, intended to answer the question to life, the universe, and everything. And it does answer it after seven and a half million years, but to everyone's chagrin, it just spits out the number 42. But it's it's convinced that the answer is correct, which makes these beings realize that the real problem is that they don't know the question to life, the universe, and everything. So they commission this deep thought, their computer, to build an even more powerful supercomputer capable of figuring out what the question is. And that supercomputer is Earth, which runs for billions of years before being prematurely destroyed to make room for the space highway. Uh, All of which is silly and maybe a little bit depressing, but uh, I think it offers a potent metaphor for what we're going to talk about today, which is Pentecost. We're going to be reading in Acts 2, uh, so feel free to turn your Bibles there and follow along if you you wish. Otherwise, uh, the verses we read will be on the screen. So we are going to start with the scriptures. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together, them being the disciples, in one place, Jesus' followers. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of, them, each of us hears them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, I'm going to get all these wrong, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Uh, 
As Kelly said, today is, is not a day that the church traditionally celebrates Pentecost in terms of like a liturgical calendar or, or anything like that. That happens in, in the springtime. I'm preaching this because I had an opportunity to speak about Easter this summer, and it just seemed like the logical next step after that. But um, it's actually a little more relevant than I thought. Um, you see, Pentecost, the holiday, already existed before the events in Acts. It was, it was Pentecost when Pentecost on Acts, as we call it, happens. Um, it was one of those traditional Jewish harvest festivals. So it occurred uh, 50 days after Pentecost, means literally means 50 days after the Passover, uh, right around the time of the, the early wheat harvest, typically in May or June. Uh, for reference, in 2024, it'll be May 19th. Um, it's now referred to as uh, Shavuot, if I pronounce that anywhere near close, which probably didn't. Um, and we'll get more into that, the significance of the day and the holiday and everything. But for now, uh, let that explain why there are loaves of bread all around and why we're, we're talking about this around Thanksgiving. Uh, in fact, scholars think that our um, American Thanksgiving tradition was, was probably evolved from uh, the Puritans observing one of the other Jewish harvest festivals, uh, Sukkot, which comes around this time of year. So we're not, we're not right there, but we're kind of close. And, and the feel of the Pentecost holiday, uh, traveling, it involved traveling, it was a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, family, abundance, joy, thankfulness, that would have been the general vibe around Jerusalem. It's a joyful time. It's a time of celebration. But, but Pentecost as we know it today, and, and with that, you know, this message of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit uh, on the new believers, it's not always a joyful topic. For many of us, it's a fraught topic, either because it feels so incongruous to our daily experience as Christians, like it, this reading this just feels different than what we've come to expect from a life of walking with God, or because we might have experienced harm uh, by words or actions that came with a claim of Holy Spirit authority, be that church dogma, some perversion of prophecy, or, or you know, say, Four large men holding you down until you could pray in tongues to prove that you were saved. Um, didn't happen to me, but true story. It was examples like this that, that led the church that I grew up in to be very uncomfortable around the topic of the Holy Spirit. We, as much as any church raised on the stories of the Bible, hungered for the supernatural, for the power of God, but it also scared us. And we, when we looked around for examples of other believers, other churches living in a way that resembled Pentecost, it just scared us more. So much abuse. Some more high-profile examples actually have been coming out in the last couple of weeks, um, if you follow that kind of news. And so we just, we just sort of avoided the topic like an awkward relative at Thanksgiving. So this is the personal note to the sermon. This is, in some ways, you know, the attempt at, at the, uh, the one I so desperately wanted to hear as a young man who, who wanted to know God uh, beyond information, beyond ideas, beyond theology, uh, but I felt so frustrated and even lost in any of my attempts to do so. Because there's something absurd, right, about a Christianity that is uncomfortable with the Holy Spirit. Like we preach as a church, the Bible and the gospel message it contains gives three answers to life, the universe, and everything. Jesus came and died, he resurrected and ascended, and he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us. We baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So a church that's not comfortable with the Holy Spirit is like a, a doctor who just doesn't do pills. Like, this is supposed to be our thing. This is supposed to be our stock and trade. So we have people who are way too comfortable throwing out the name of the Holy Spirit. 
and others who are not comfortable in the slightest. So what's going on here? What's, what's missing? I would, I would suggest that while we may know that the Holy Spirit is part of the answer, our problem is that we don't know what the question is. Put another way, we lack context. If our religion was, you know, all about sin and punishment, we could make it all about the cross, and some of us do. And if we added the existential, you know, the real pressing threats of death and meaninglessness to, meaninglessness to the list, that's a tongue twister, um, Jesus' resurrection would, would have that covered just fine. But that leaves Pentecost as this sort of bonus event uh, that seems maybe in our own day and age to maybe cause more problems than it solves. Um, so, so what's the point? So let's take all those questions into the scriptures. Um, maybe where we're starting with this is not so different from where the hearers of the first Pentecost sermon were. After all, their first question in verse 12 was, uh, what does this mean? What does this mean? So let's pause and uh, pray for a second before continuing. Um, Father God, uh, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing to you, um, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Just pray that you would um, be here with us today in your holy presence. Amen. All right, so today we're going to go back in time. Imagine the squiggly wiggly lines of a 90s movie enveloping us for a second. You all remember that animation? Um, Because if we were really to press into this idea of finding the question, uh, probably a good place to start would be the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. So from Genesis through the prophets, um, a big central question drives the narrative. The question is, how is God going to get his world back? How is he going to live with his people like he did in the beginning? And as the events unfold, specific problems surrounding that question begin to emerge, and they become themselves, you know, part of these questions. That story begins to unfold. God chooses Abraham and his family to be his holy people. He liberates them from Egypt. He establishes them in a territory through crazy, miraculous interventions. He takes them from wandering in the desert, literally carrying their worship implements on their shoulders, to a full-blown kingdom, complete with palace, temple, army, everything. God remains faithful throughout, even in bringing Israel back from exile after some of their defeats. But the flagship, the centerpiece of God's redemptive plan here in the Old Testament is the law. Like the law in like quotes, like capital L, the Torah. This law given to Moses is what makes Israel a different kind of kingdom from the other kingdoms. Well, when we hear law, we might think of, you know, legal codes, prohibitions, fines, prison, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and there's, there's no shortage of rules and things like that in here. Uh, but it goes well beyond that. The law or the Torah, it's, it's the whole, it's the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So it covers matters of ethics and justice, but it goes beyond all that into matters of things like eating, grooming, and basket weaving. Plus, interspersed throughout that are dramatic narratives, relatable characters, rich symbols, moving speeches, theological reflections, ecstatic poetry. All of this taken together adds up to basically an entire prescribed way of life, a whole state of existence. And that word, that word life gets identified with the law on multiple levels. The law is not just a practical concern. Do this and you will live. That becomes the promise that God will give you life in abundance. This is, basically, this is Israel's secret weapon 
their prized possession. This is how God is, this is, this is, how God is going to restore the world. Now, to be clear, the redemption story was and always is first about faith. All of this whole narrative started when Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Basically, God starts telling Abraham a story and Abraham says, I believe you. And that's enough for God. Not only to call Abraham righteous or just, uh, but to bring Abraham into that story that he's telling. And throughout the Old Testament, you know, the prophets, their role especially was to keep pointing Israel back to that same unfolding story, to God's covenants, his plans, his promises for Israel, and eventually his promise of a coming deliverer, a Messiah. So believing in God's promise is what unites people, whether ancient Israelite or any one of us here today, into his story. And just like with Abraham, God is happy to call us and them his own, to bring their story or our story into his independent of the law. So we never, big, we, we never did some big switch from religion being about law uh, to religion being all about faith. That was a misunderstanding. It started with faith, it ends with faith. And the law was given in its time as the instrument by which God was going to accomplish his immediate goal of making a holy people, dedicated to him. It was the mode that God gave to his faithful as how they might express their faith through a way of life a fully immersive practice that connected them to this story. If this promise, this story of God to Abraham, was like a vehicle through which he was going to redeem the world, the law was the engine that powered it. It wasn't the what, it was the how. Cool? Cool. All right. Uh, Over time, Israel's emphasis on the law would grow, even taking on outsized proportions. So as we said, the law didn't have power in itself to save anyone. Uh, In terms of making them acceptable to God, that was always about faith but it was held in high esteem. It was the diamond you know, set in the ring of their faith. It was the gift that brought life and blessing through obeying it. And so develops the Pentecost holiday. The celebration of the wheat harvest, which was actually prescribed by the law, uh, comes over time to be associated with thankfulness and joy for the law. Yay, law. Uh, maybe a little hard for us to imagine in our time. Great enthusiasm. And then the chief symbol for this festival Uh, is what you see before us on the stage, bread. Um, Fermented leavened grain, a nutritional powerhouse. I am a bread nerd. I could go into details. I'll spare you. Uh, But you can almost, almost uh, live exclusively on bread and water alone. Uh, And it was the the staple crop par excellence of the Mediterranean region. Um, We feel pressure to maybe cut carbs these days. Uh, We don't necessarily think of bread like that because carbs are energy and we don't have to move anymore. Uh, But for the ancient Middle Easterners, bread was the closest thing to life that you could hold in your hands. Like, this is what you need for life in a tangible way. So, high praise. High praise to compare the law to that. And the only problem with the law, you know, just the the one little issue, uh, is that it didn't work. I mean, it's great. It's, It's beautiful, even. It just never manages to do what everybody thinks it's supposed to do, uh, you know, to help progress this story of God's redemption. And the problem is not with what it says, but how it works out in practice. Words can have profound power, but they can also be twisted, misunderstood, ignored, or dismissed. And at the end of the day, the law is just words on a page. And it would seem that that's not enough. The law lacked in its nature the necessary power 
people needed to accomplish it. There was the, there was, now there was that attached promise uh, of getting God's blessing for fulfilling the law. That's beyond words. But, but clearly nobody is fulfilling it because nobody seems to be getting blessed. Now how do we know that? Well, the Old Testament story as it goes on is a story of struggle. And by the end, Israel is kind of in shambles. The time Jesus is born into, Israel is a colonized state under the oppression of the Roman Empire. It's divided into political factions, and it's just all in all just compromised. Now, there was a teaching going around uh, that if all of Israel could maybe just follow God's law perfectly, like for just, if we can just get it together for just one day, God will send the Messiah, the deliverer that he promised, and Rome's hold on Israel will crumble. But there was plenty of reason by this time to believe that something just wasn't working, something was missing. And this is the situation that Peter steps into on that day during Pentecost. So let's read what he had to say. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited, to you by, accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So Peter shows up on this day that's all about the Torah, but he connects with his audience not on the level of the Torah, on the level of the law, but on the level of story, specifically of God's supernatural interventions throughout their history, their story. You see, whenever God shows up in Israel's history to move his story along, he always did so with accompanying signs and wonders. Egypt, Jericho, Ten Commandments, prophets, way more. When things get all magic-y, God is doing something new. Well, with the speaking in, in other tongues, things are getting all magic-y. And Peter connects that to their shared experience as a people. Guys, pay attention. God is moving. Don't miss out. And Peter appeals not only to the supernatural happenings, but also to their connection to specific prop prophecies. He quotes the prophet Joel, as we read, who predicted the miraculous signs, but also specifically promised that God was going to pour out his spirit on all people who called on the name of the Lord. That was going to happen, and it is happening. As the writer of Acts, as the writer of Acts is careful to include, Luke, the writer of Acts, some of, some of the setting of this event brings even reminders of God's story at play here. You know, there's the law thing with Pentecost, but there's also the tongues of fire over the disciples' heads, which is like the lampstands representing God's presence that would burn in the Jewish temple. Um, and this miracle of many languages is, is, is actually the perfect inverse of the story of the Tower of Babel, where God punishes sinful humanity by confusing everyone's language and scattering them over the earth. 
it, it, it's kind of like rewinding a movie, so it's like someone is like jumping backwards up a building, or they're like they're taking food out of their mouth and like putting it perfectly back on the plate. Um, it's playing, it's playing in reverse. The curse of Babel is being reversed here. Um, and there, there's other references too. In a lot of ways, uh, this is like that moment at the end of a prequel series where all the loose ends have to be tied up in preparation for the new story to begin. Uh, you could think uh, Star Wars Revenge of the Sith. I watched that with my kids while I was writing this. and They just, we have to get all of this from here so we can start here. So there's a lot of ground being covered in this chapter. Uh, but then Peter ties it all into Jesus, made Lord and Messiah. And uh, yeah, you killed him, but that was part of the unfolding plan that was supposed to happen. I love how winsome Peter is here, especially with how combative this subject could have been. Like, awkward, potentially. This speech is a declaration that the guy they demanded to be killed was innocent. Peter continues, and he rose again, though you, you, know, you guys weren't here for that. But now he says, what matters here is God is ready for the next chapter in the story of his people, the next step in his unfolding plan. Jesus was and is the promised Messiah, made king now, and his gift of the Holy Spirit is on offer to whoever is ready to join. Let's read, uh, read a little further. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord, our God, will call. And with many words he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. I love that Peter is just bringing everyone along here, connecting with their history, just saying, hey, this is what's happening now. Here's how you can recognize it. Don't miss out. It helps that he has these thousands of years of history to draw on, thousands of years of the questions and the problems that lead to this answer. And to bring it home, Peter even references at the end of his speech a specific phrase that God used to say to Abraham when he was reminding him of those promises. This is for you and for your offspring. God would say that every time he reminded Abraham of it. And as we just read, Peter says that. This is for you, this is for your offspring, uh, and, and he adds a new one. And to all those who are far off. Hmm. So, once Jesus' sacrifice has reconciled us to God, showing the world that God is still just, but will stop at nothing to live with his people, and once Jesus' resurrection has shown once and for all that God's power to make things bigger, to make things new, is bigger than even sin and death, we are left with one remaining question. I think it's the logical question that follows. What do we do now? What do we do right now? How do we live? Our past is erased. Our future is certain. What about, what about today? And that's exactly the question that the law had answered in its time. How shall we live? But when Peter stands up on Pentecost, he announces a new chapter in God's story. Things are changing. Instead of growing one nation to represent him, God is now extending his invitation to people from every nation to come and be a part of his story. And by announcing this on this particular day, that's, that's no accident because there's also, with that, a new law being given. We've got a new car. We need a new engine. New wineskins for new wine, to use the Bible's metaphor. 
And maybe Peter does, hasn't fully connected the dots on this yet, uh, given what we know uh, later. We just went through Galatians. Uh, it would have been very hard. It would have been very hard for a Jewish person when approached with the question, you know, I'm here now, how shall I live, to resist saying, well, get circumcised and follow the law. That just, that was what you did. That was the right answer. But now, at this time, it's the old answer. The Holy Spirit, God's presence living in and among us, is our new law and our new way of life. Now, in some ways, the function is the same. The Holy Spirit is here to talk about God and to make us different, weird to some, but, you know, weird together. But he is a law that is better than the last. He's more than just words on a page. The law of the Spirit actually contains the power to accomplish what God is currently up to, which is making one holy family out of all the families scattered over the world. This law isn't just a giant metaphor. It's God himself living with us. Um, let's read the bit at the end of the chapter, um, which, in which Luke starts to describe a little bit about how this plays out, uh, sort of looking forward to what this new reality, uh, part of what it's going to be. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Um, now, we still, you know, Christians nowadays, uh, like Peter, still like to come up with all manner of substitutes for that answer that he gave. We settle for the familiar. Uh, okay, I'm a, I'm a Christian now, somebody says. What do I do? Well, study your Bible, be a good person, volunteer at church, receive the sacraments, study church dogma and theology. Nothing, just believe. We have all number of answers for that, whatever is familiar to us. Uh, you know, read the gospel accounts and try to live out Jesus' teachings. All of which, in context, can be wonderful things. Those are all good things. But they're not the answer that Scripture points us to. They're not the answer given when the crowd, cut to the heart by Peter's words, asks him, what shall we do? His answer is, repent and be baptized, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's the answer. Let's start there. Um, so now we're going to go into a time of worship and communion where we share a little meal together in remembrance of Jesus. Uh, and just like the bread here today, just like the bread of Pentecost, we eat the bread. We remember that Jesus gave us his body on the cross. And as we drink the wine, we remember that just as Christ poured out his blood on the cross, now he pours out his Holy Spirit on all who hold on to him. And as we do so, uh, I, I just want to give us the opportunity uh, to practice being the body of Christ by letting the Holy Spirit do his work among us. So if you come up for communion, uh, instead of returning to your seat, uh, let me encourage you to find someone else to sit next to. Uh, we'll put some prompts up on the screen to reference if you uh, would like an angle on it, or you can just feel free to do your own thing. Um, feel free to let the Spirit lead. But let's listen to each other. Uh, let's listen to God together. And... Uh, Let's let the Holy Spirit connect us to each other and to Jesus. 
Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.